Our passage today is Acts 21. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. I'm excited about covering this passage. I want to encourage you to be ready to open your Bibles, to look through it with me as we study together God's Word. Let's stand as we read Acts 21, 1 through 14. This is God's holy Word, inspired, authoritative for us. Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with all wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed there with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the easy parts and the difficult parts and all the things that you've given us to to work through to the glory of your name. And so I pray that this morning would be a a time in which we do roll up our sleeves and, and, and dig deep into your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've said a couple times already we have a challenging task, and I... I think we as believers need to be excited about those opportunities. God wants us to be a workman who's not ashamed to rightly divide the word of truth to to be challenged. And so we are going to try to understand exactly what's going on in these 14 verses. We're told in verse 4 that the disciples at the city of Tyre told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. What does that mean? We're told in verse 9 that Philip the evangelist had four daughters who prophesied. And probably most interesting of all, in verses 10 to 11, we read about a prophet named Agabus who acted a lot like the Old Testament prophets and said, thus saith the Lord. Was prophecy in the New Testament the same as prophecy in the Old Testament? Does it still exist today? And if not, why not? In order to answer those questions, we're going to need to look at some of the other passages of the Bible. And the first thing I want to do is to understand just what prophecy is in the first place. So the main purpose 
of an Old Testament prophet was to be God's ambassador and representative. Sometimes this meant acting a lot like a prosecuting attorney and proving that Israel had violated her covenant with God. Sometimes it meant warning of judgment. Sometimes it meant speaking blessings. Sometimes it simply was delivering a message from the Lord intended to edify the people or call them to right conduct. A prophet spoke the words of God. Thus we read in 2 Samuel 12 how the Lord, notice it's the Lord sent a word by Nathan the prophet to King David. In fact, a true prophet, according to Jeremiah 28, that you see there is one whom the Lord has truly sent. But false prophets, Jeremiah says, actually the Lord says through Jeremiah, false prophets are those who prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. Why was it important to be truly sent by God? It was important because official messengers don't carry their own authority. They speak with the authority and the words of the one who sent them. I want you to think of an ambassador to a foreign country who carries a message from his own country's leader. He does not consider his message to be his own, nor does it come merely with his own personal authority. And so the Old Testament prophets claim that their words, their words were the very words that God had given them to deliver. God told Moses in Exodus 4, I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall say. He told Jeremiah, I have put my words in your mouth. It's not surprising then that we have and often hear the Old Testament prophets speaking either in the first person for God, saying things like, I will do this. We know it's God saying, I will do this for the people. Or I have done that. We also hear them use the phrase, thus says the Lord. And there was a practical consequence to this idea that the prophet spoke God's very words. It made a lot of difference in how the people responded to them. If a person believed that the prophet's words had absolute divine authority and that they were listening to God and not the prophet, then they would not risk disobeying or disbelieving even the slightest part of the message for fear of being punished by God himself. I could quote a number of passages, but the point should be clear that to disobey or disbelieve what a true prophet said in God's name was no small matter because God treated it as rejecting him. And there was another consequence of the fact that true prophets were thought to speak the very words of God. If these were God's words, then they were true and good and pure by definition. And that's why we don't find in the Old Testament any instance where the prophecy of someone like Samuel or Nathan, who were true prophets, were evaluated or critiqued so that good parts could be sorted from bad parts or the true from the false. Rather, when Samuel was established as a prophet, 1 Samuel 3.19 says that the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And Saul's servant could say in 1 Samuel 9, 6, everything he says comes to pass. Now, if a prophet spoke in the name of the Lord and even one prophecy did not come true, he was a false prophet. And the authority of the Old Testament prophets was so great, and thus the effect of the people to the people resulting from false prophecy was so disastrous that the penalty for false prophecy was what? 
It was death, according to Deuteronomy 18. So what we find in the Old Testament is that every prophet was judged or evaluated to see if they were a prophet and if their words came to pass. And note, though, that the various parts of every prophecy, as I said earlier, were not evaluated as if it was possible to say, well, these three sentences are inspired, but these next five aren't. A true prophet, when speaking for God, when prophesying, would never mix his own words with God's. And that is why 1 Samuel 3 says that it was plain that the Lord was with Samuel, let none of his words fall to the ground, that all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And then at that point, when Samuel was speaking on the Lord's behalf to second guess or disobey Samuel, even in what seemed like arbitrary commands spoken on in the name of the Lord would have been wrong, and Israel was punished. The second thing we need to do today is determine whether prophecy in the New Testament is different than that in the Old Testament. If you take a look again at verses 10 to 11 of our passage, we read about this man named Agabus. It says, when he came down to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And in this section, we see that Agabus is called a prophet. And as we've come to see, that term had specific meaning. Agabus spoke the words, thus says the Holy Spirit. It's the same as saying, thus says the Lord. Signaling that like the Old Testament prophets, his words were not his words, but the Lord's words. And his object lesson of taking Paul's belt and binding his own hands and feet, doesn't that seem a lot like some of the Old Testament prophets like in Ezekiel or in Isaiah, who acted out their prophecies as the Lord directed them. Luke records Agabus' words not to say that they didn't come to pass, but rather because they did come to pass and that they all believed that they were going to come to pass. But Paul said that he was willing not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly Paul thought they were going to come to pass. Acts chapter 21, by the way, is not the first time that we meet Agabus. In Acts 11, we read, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So again, Luke's description is that Agabus by the Spirit, showed that there was going to be a worldwide famine. And Luke goes on to say, not only did the famine happen during the time of Claudius Caesar, but that the church at Antioch was moved because of their confidence and belief in Agabus' prophecy to send relief to Israel. And what I hope you can see is that Agabus, his actions, his words, his reception by the people was exactly the same as an Old Testament prophet. And that leads us to a third issue. In 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, the Apostle Paul describes a gift of prophecy. Is the term prophecy being used by Paul in the same way in 1 Corinthians as we see in Acts? Well, let's see. 
Prophecy is first mentioned in chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, verses 4 to 10, where Paul says there are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, for to one is given the word of wisdom, to another the gift of prophecy. There are other gifts that are listed there in those verses, but I wanted you to understand the context there. It's a gift that the Holy Spirit distributed. And in the next chapter in 13.2, Paul says more about this gift. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Finally, in chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, he writes, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who prophesies edifies the church. So what was going on in Corinth? If we break down what Paul says, there's this gift of prophecy that some but not all possessed. This gift was given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church. But then we look at what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1. He says, prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And if the gift of prophecy that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians is included in this description of prophecy, this general description of prophecy, which I believe it should be, then prophecy meant the same thing in the New Testament as it did in the Old Testament. It was an experience of divine revelation. Author O. Palmer Robertson makes a good point that Peter is not limiting his words here to what the prophets wrote, as in just the scriptures, but rather points to what the prophets spoke. Peter describing these prophets as being moved by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul makes a connection between prophecy and understanding mysteries. And there's a helpful passage, very helpful, in Ephesians 3. Where we read, by revelation, he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, this is a very helpful passage because there are several things going on here. First, notice that the term mystery refers to something that was hidden. It was hidden in time before Christ. You can see that. But it is now, as Paul says, revealed by the Spirit to whom? To his holy apostles and prophets. You'll catch that Paul didn't just say to his holy apostles, but also to his prophets and you'll also catch that Paul says that this is happening now, which means that the apostles and prophets that he's talking about is not the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets, but rather to the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Why? Because Paul is talking about now, post-Christ. Post-Christ, these things are being revealed to his apostles and prophets. Saying this another way, by the time that Paul wrote Ephesians, he was speaking of the prophets as people who, along with the apostles, were given the divine commission to declare something authoritative and true about the present time. 
In other places, Paul uses different phrases to describe this mystery that he, he mentions here. He calls it in Ephesians 3, the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians 6, he calls it the mystery of the gospel. So this mystery, which the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament period understood, was the mystery of the gospel of Christ in all of its fullness as it was revealed in that present time. This revealing to the apostles and the prophets was through the Holy Spirit. It was meant for the edification of the church. The words that they spoke were God's words. They were to be heard. They were to be received in the same way that the words of the Old Testament prophets had been heard and received. So what does Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 14? When he writes, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let me tell you what I don't think it means. I don't think that Paul has introduced here a new, lesser type of fallible prophecy as some kind of spiritual enlightenment to speak encouraging words. Totally different than the Old Testament context where those with the gift of prophecy spoke God's words from divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. Paul's purpose in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is to exhort the church to good order in their worship and the use of the gifts. And when Paul speaks of things like two or three speaking and one person keeping silent while another is speaking and that the prophets are able to control their own spirits, he is speaking of good order. He's saying, don't all speak at once. You don't all have to speak. And you can be self-controlled by waiting. And to understand what Paul means by others judging, it's important to understand that that word judge is a translation of the word diakrino in the Greek, which means to discriminate or to discern. And the million dollar question, discriminate between what and what? Well, I think 1 John 4 is helpful in this regard. John writes, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And also in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, do not despise prophecies, but test all things, hold fast what is good. Most likely what Paul means by others judging or discriminating is that they are discerning not among words to try to tell which one of these are God's words and which are not, but rather this whether this person is actually a prophet and thus a true prophet or else a false prophet. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, right after Paul mentions a gift of prophecy, he also mentions a gift of discerning spirits or discriminating between spirits. And if that's the meaning, then that's the same type of testing that was once done with Old Testament prophecy. A lesser possibility is that Paul, by discriminating 
is continuing with this idea of order, good order. And so Paul is saying that someone must determine who among the prophets is to speak and who is not to speak. But either way, what I want us to understand is that prophecy in the New Testament was no different than prophecy in the Old Testament. It sometimes had a predictive nature, particularly in the earliest years of the church with Agabus. And it always had a proclaiming nature, speaking forth the will of God as it related to the revelation of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like the Old Testament prophets, it was a divine revelation that came from the Holy Spirit. It was not some kind of new or lesser prophecy that amounted to no more than encouraging spiritual words. It was to be received as God's words and as true. So the fourth thing to address is whether this gift of prophecy still exists. Are there still apostles and prophets? I've already partly answered that question. New Testament prophecy was primarily the proclaiming in that present time of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was not so much a predicting of something in the future as it was a proclaiming of something in the present. But there's There's more on this, and we find it in Hebrews 1. We read there, God at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So God revealed himself through the prophets, and the only way God's people could know his will and what he was like was by listening to the message of God's messengers. But that message was incomplete before Christ. It was as if God had revealed small parts of the whole story. And each time it was to be continued, but with Christ to be continued became what? It is finished. Hebrews 1 says that in Christ was the full and complete picture and revelation of God. And the point is this, we don't need any further revelation. The story was completed in Christ. And so the apostles and New Testament prophets after Christ were commissioned to clarify his ministry not with the notable exception of revelation to reveal new information. Did the apostles and prophets speak with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets? Yes. In Galatians 1, 11 through 12, Paul writes, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's precisely the type of thing that Samuel, the Old Testament prophet, would have said. If any person came and spoke a different gospel than like the false prophets of the Old Testament, they were to be considered anathema, according to Galatians 1.8, that, that word, that term meaning cursed eternally by God. Moreover, Paul commended the Thessalonians for receiving his words, not as the word of men, but as it really is, he said, the word of God. Unless they regard that lightly, he warns them in 1 Thessalonians 4.8, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. 
And as we saw in Ephesians 3, Paul says the apostles shared that commission with the prophets. Once the church was established, once the mysteries were fully revealed and clarified, the goal of revelation was realized. We can't separate prophecy from revelation. Prophecy proclaims revelation. Prophecy is not just a spiritual insight, but rather is a speaking forth the words of God. And we can't forget the purpose of revelation, which was not just a continued experience of God. Rather, God's revelation is anchored in and centered upon the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came and when he spoke and his words were explained, that purpose was fulfilled because now we can have personal knowledge of Jesus Christ himself through his word and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This makes sense, for example, of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what we read earlier. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Given that Paul, just a few verses later in Ephesians chapter 3, uses the same term prophets to refer to the prophets after Christ, it is highly likely here a few verses earlier, that being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets in chapter 2 also refers to the apostles in the New Testament prophets, which is also what most commentators think. And here's the point. Paul says that the work of the apostles and the prophets was foundational. It's the first firm anchoring base foundational thing that holds up the rest of the structure. In what way? What did they do? Was it not, as we saw with Hebrews and with Paul's letters, to prepare the way and then to explain coming, the coming of Christ from Judea to the ends of the earth, the account that we have recorded in the book of Acts? And once that foundation was laid, it did not need to be continually laid generation after generation after generation And now when people have questions about what God desires of them or what God is doing, what is our answer? To the Word. As Westminster Confession of Faith says, well, God was pleased to reveal himself at various times in a variety of ways, and then he committed himself wholly, meaning exclusively then, unto writing. Paul tells Timothy that the scriptures have everything that we need both to know God and to grow in righteousness. And God has graciously indwelt us also with his spirit, writing his law, his word upon our hearts, giving us discernment with regard to his word as well as his providential work around us. There's more that could be said. We could could talk about the absence of prophesying in the church for several hundred years after the early church. We could talk about the lack of reference by Paul in his latest, last letters to the gift of prophesying. Let me say it again, because that's a tongue twister. We could talk about the lack of reference by Paul in his last letters to any of the gifts of prophesying. Whereas most 
of what Paul says when it comes to prophesying occurs in his earliest letters, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians. That's not conclusive evidences. But they're the types of things we would expect if the prophets and the apostles had a specific and key purpose tied in the early establishment of the church, and if with the completion of the scriptures and the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the goal of God revealing himself was fulfilled and the need for prophesying ended. Well, your head is spinning by this point in time. You're, you're wondering either what I've said, you're perhaps being like a good Berean and you know, shuffling the pages and, and trying to confirm. I've said, and that's what I always encourage you to do. Always be like the Bereans. And whatever I say, go back and confirm them with the Holy Scriptures. But you may be wondering, what does all of this have to do with me? Did we just come this morning for a theological discussion? Well, from the passage, I want you to see a few things. First, look at Paul's determination in verse 13. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready, for I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Imagine that you're Paul. The church of Tyre has begged you not to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Agabus tells you that you will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles and your closest friends are weeping and pleading with you not to go. It's, what a pressure. Paul says they're breaking his heart. Without saying whether Paul should have gone to Jerusalem or not, I'll save that for my next sermon, the pressure that Paul felt given his conviction to go to Jerusalem is the same pressure that you will sometimes experience either from your own flesh not wanting to face persecution or from others discouraging you from doing dangerous things. Nobody wants a loved one to face harm. But living a comfortable life and avoiding persecution, you already know that's not how God has described the life of his child. And that was true of Paul. It's true of Christ. When Jesus walked to Jerusalem, his disciples begged him not to go. And Luke, the same one who writes Acts in his gospel, chapter 9, writes about Jesus. When the time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's what Paul felt that he was doing. He felt like he was just like his Savior, setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's what God asks of you to set your face to continue on the path that he has set for you, even if it costs you everything. As Oswald Chambers once said, no healthy saint ever chooses suffering, but he chooses God's will. As Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. And God puts his people where they will glorify him, and we are not capable of judging where that is. And then if you look at Paul's companion's response in verse 14, when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. And again, we'll look at next time whether Luke and the others were right to plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But in general, isn't it true that we can be quick to think that we know what is best for those whom we care about? And isn't that often based upon a desire for their safety and for their comfort? 
But we can't equate our desires, which are too often based on the flesh, with God's plan, which is nearly always asking us to do difficult, impossible, sacrificial things. It's really hard for parents with their adult children making those kinds of decisions. In the end, either the attempt to persuade otherwise, after the attempt to persuade otherwise, Paul's companions, they model for us a different way. They didn't take Paul's decision personally. They didn't continue in bitterness or hurt, but they declared what? Well, then the Lord's will be done. And I encourage you this morning to ask of yourselves the hard question of whether the things that you're pursuing and valuing and doing are based upon a desire to promote safety, comfort. Do you find it hard to sacrifice for the kingdom because of what it will demand of you personally? Or of your family, would you be willing, like Paul, to do this or that difficult, impossible thing if you thought that that was what the Lord asked of you? What is there in your life right now? And it's not necessarily a go to Jerusalem type of thing where you're going to be handed over to death. I'm saying, what is it right now that God is asking you to die to self over? That's a hard, impossible, difficult thing. God desires to place you in the position where you are fully dependent upon him. Where you are being used, stretched, sometimes pressed hard, whether that's in a relationship with your spouse, whether that's in the midst of your job, could be a calling outside of your home, in a mission area, locally, foreign, whatever it may be. God desires you to be pressed in such a way that spilling out of you is what? The great treasure that he has put within you. To his glory, for his honor and his name. May your attitude be that of Richard Baxter who once said, Lord, what you will, where you will, and when you will. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for, as I said earlier, the, the privilege to try to understand the difficult things of your word. It would be easy to skip over these sections and just talk about Paul's determination and what happened next and get caught up in some of that excitement and, and totally ignore these parts that talk about people prophesying. And I pray that as we looked at your word today, we would have, if anything, a greater respect for prophesying in the New Testament, period. That we would recognize how seriously you take that people speak in your name, speak authoritatively in your name. And Father, I ask that you would help us as we think about our own calls to difficult things, to not get caught up in a desire for comfort, but Father, to keep asking, is this where you want us? Are we doing what most gives you glory? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.